people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily and I'm Rebecca and today we have a very special guest. We are welcoming Hannah Barreto who's a PhD student. Hello Hannah. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> do you want to start off by telling everybody kind of what you do? Yeah so I started my PhD in March 2020 and at the moment I'm working on post-colonial gothic literature. So I'm looking at how the gothic tradition has evolved from the 1900s to present day and how we can use it in different ways to how we did before to sort of challenge the way we look at race and also look at the way humans interact with each other. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's very cool. (laughs) That's very cool. Nice one. So yeah, today if you've been with us for guest episodes before, You'll know that we usually hand it over to our guests mm-hmm. for their infatuation. Emily, is there anything else people need to know? I don't think so. Cool. <laughs> we'll do this, then we'll do our usual stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Hannah, <laughs> what are you infatuated with? So I really struggled to choose what I was going to talk about today because there are so many books I've read recently that I was really 100% infatuated with and in the end I decided to go for something that I have always been infatuated with because I thought that that would make probably the most interesting conversation. Sure. So um, I'm going to talk about Coraline <gasps> by Neil <Yes>. Gaiman. <laughs> oh um, I'm, I feel like I should just leave now because <laughs> Emily's got this covered. <laughs> absolute favourite. Um, both the film and the book so I suppose I'm going to talk about the story in general Mm -hmm. incorporating both the film and the book Um, nice I've actually not read the book I've only seen the film a book that Emily has not read yeah I know I've only but I've seen the film about 15,000 times yeah I think I've seen the film more times since I've lived with you than I ever did in the years before it's just so clever like I love the way you can interpret it in so many different ways Mm -hmm. I always get something new from it each time I watch it but yeah, originally, some fun facts, well they're, they're not really fun facts, they're just <laughs> <laughs> information that you really want to know. So, it was originally published in 2002 um, as a children's novella, which I think is wild because it is so scary. It's terrifying. Yeah. It really is. It's categorised as horror slash dark fantasy, but I would also be inclined to say that it's very, very gothic. And yeah. there are a lot of gothic tropes in it too. Something that I think is really interesting that Neil Gaiman says in the introduction, is Coraline was originally supposed to be called Caroline. I know, and she was only called Coraline because of a typo. So he says, I had typed the name Caroline and it came out wrong. I looked at the word Coraline and knew it was someone's name. I really wanted to know what happened to her. That's cool. Oh, that's so... Oh, I love that. I know. (laughs) So I was like, that's such a cool premise for a character's name, especially because... It's, um, she's like the eponymous character. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in 2009 it was released as a stop motion animated film directed by the same guy who directed Nightmare Before Christmas. Henry, is it Selick? Henry yeah. Selick? Yeah. So if you look at the two films you can totally see the similarities visually so it's awesome. Should I do the synopsis first? I don't know. I was going to read That's you a little excerpt you. which I think is quite... No, go f- do whatever you want. Okay, we'll do the synopsis first. Okay. So I'll try and make it not I'm going to make it spoiler-free. Okay. But there are some parts later on where I'll probably have to give some spoilers. That's fine. I think that's okay. We can allow it for Coraline. Yeah. I think (laughs) most people are familiar with the story anyway. I think so, yeah. 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 So, 
Um, I've written that Coraline is about a parallel other world that almost exactly mirrors our own. Um, Coraline discovers this through a secret door in her new home when she moves home with her family. Everything's, everything seems better in this parallel world than it does at home. It's like an idealised version of her reality and her other home is like a child's dream. So if you've seen the film you'll know that this other world has like a magical garden, she's got like enchanted toys, any kind of food you can imagine, her parents are more fun, everything just seems like objectively better. But eventually her other parents try to trap her there forever and Coraline realises it's not as perfect and idyllic as she originally thought. And once she discovers what lies beneath the veneer of perfection, she must do all she can to escape. Mm. So, it's so sinister, man. It's it so is. spooky. So, <laughs> Emily, you've not read the book, so this will be a fun experience for you. I'm going to read your story. I love Neil Gaiman. It's one of the, his only books I haven't read. Weirdly. I'm so shocked that you haven't read it because you love this film so much. Shook. Do you know, actually, the genuine reason that I haven't read it is because I can't find a copy that I like the cover of. <laughs> So this one, I'm holding it up like you that can see it. That one is quite cute. Yeah. This is like the re-release and it's got some really cool illustrations in it. But yeah, I picked a little excerpt that I thought really encapsulated the sort of eeriness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll read that. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> the family did not use the drawing room. They had inherited the furniture from Coraline's grandmother along with a wooden coffee table, a side table, a heavy glass ashtray, and the oil painting of a bowl of fruit. Coraline could never work out why anyone would want to paint a bowl of fruit. Other than that, the room was empty. There were no knickknacks on the mantelpiece, no statues or clocks, nothing that made it feel comfortable or lived in. The old black key felt cooler than any of the others. She pushed it into the keyhole. It turned smoothly, with a satisfying clunk. Coraline stopped and listened. She knew she was doing something wrong, and she was trying to listen for her mother coming back, but she heard nothing. Then Coraline put her hand on the doorknob and turned it, and finally she opened the door. It opened onto a dark hallway. The bricks had gone as if they'd never been there. There was a cold, musty smell coming through the open doorway. It smelled like something very old and very slow. Coraline went through the door. She wondered what the empty flat would be like, if that was where the corridor led. Coraline walked down the corridor uneasily. There was something very familiar about it. The carpet beneath her feet was the same carpet they had in their flat. The wallpaper was the same wallpaper they had. The picture hanging in the hall was the same that they had hanging in their hallway at home. She knew where she was. She was in her own home. She hadn't left. She shook her head, confused. She stared at the picture hanging on the wall. No, it wasn't exactly the same. The picture they had in their own hallway showed a boy in old-fashioned clothes staring at some bubbles. But now the expression on his face was different. He was looking at the bubbles as if he was planning to do something very nasty indeed to them, and there was something peculiar about his eyes. Coraline stared at his eyes, trying to work out what exactly was different. She almost had it when somebody said, Coraline. It sounded like her mother. Coraline went into the kitchen where the voice had come from. A woman stood in the kitchen with her back to Coraline. She looked a little like Coraline's mother. Only, only her skin was white as paper. Only she was taller and thinner. Only her fingers were too long 
and they never stopped moving, and her dark red fingernails were curved and sharp. Coraline, the woman said, is that you? And then she turned round. Her eyes were big black buttons. Lunchtime, Coraline, said the woman. Who are you? asked Coraline. I'm your other mother, said the woman. Go and tell your other father that lunch is ready. She opened the door of the oven. Suddenly Coraline realised how hungry she was. It smelled wonderful. Well, go on. Coraline went down the hall to where her father's study was. She opened the door. There was a man in there, sitting at the keyboard with his back to her. Hello, said Coraline. I, I mean she, said to say that lunch is ready. The man turned round. His eyes were buttons, big and black and shiny. Hello, Coraline, he said. I'm starving. He got up and went with her into the kitchen. They sat at the kitchen table and Coraline's other mother brought them lunch. A huge golden brown roasted chicken, fried potatoes, tiny green peas. Coraline shoveled the food into her mouth. It tasted wonderful. We've been waiting for you for a long time, said Coraline's other father. For me? Yes, said the other mother. It wasn't the same here without you, but we knew you'd arrive one day and then we could be a proper family. It's so, so good. <laughs> Do you know what I've just realised? What? Is that in the film, obviously, they're like stop motion, so they're like puppets. Mm -hmm. So the buttons look creepy, but they don't look completely out of place. Because mm -hmm. it's animated. Because it's yeah. animated. But I've just, right now, when you've read that, imagined buttons sewn onto actual real people. Yeah. That is horrifying. <laughs> it really is. It's so spooky. What? I know. <laughs> and I think as well, the house, so the pink palace where they live, mm -hmm. is a Victorian manor house and it was segregated into like different buildings. So I think in the book there are four flats and in the film there are three. Mm. So there's just this whole, the thing that freaks me out the most is in the real world, so before Coraline discovers the other world, downstairs in the basement there's Miss Sphinx and Miss Forcible who are these two um, really eccentric kind of dramatic ex-actresses. And then above, there's Mr. Bobinski with his mice circus. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's Coraline's family in the middle. And in the other world, those same people exist, but they all have buttons for eyes. Mm. And it's like they've all got a doppelganger, they've all got a double. And the people in the real world warn Coraline about their existence in the other world. Mm. So if you're familiar with the film, you'll know that Miss Sphinx and Miss Forceful give Coraline a little stone that she can look through and it'll show yeah. her where all the evil is in the world. So it's like they've given her that to warn her against their evil double mm. that exists elsewhere. And it just is a little bit too much. <laughs> it's so like proper yeah. nightmare fuel that you would go through like a, right. to a world where everyone's a double except you. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's so scary. And um, I wondered initially... Like, when I read stories like that, I usually wonder why they were written or who they were written for. Mm. And Neil Gaiman wrote an introduction, I think it's in the original as well, and he said, I wanted to write a story for my daughters that told them something I wish I'd known when I was a boy. That being brave doesn't mean you aren't scared. Being brave means you are scared, really scared, badly scared, and you do the right thing anyway. Yeah, I knew so, that quote, even though I hadn't read this yeah. book. Yeah. So I think it took him about... I'm sure it was something like 10 years to actually finish writing it. He wrote it for his 
own kids and it really resonated with me because when I was younger I don't know if this makes me weird but like I wasn't a sort of princess story type person Mm -hmm. I loved stories about like witches and monsters yeah Yeah. and you know like all the horrible (laughs) creatures who were then like defeated by a really strong brave like girl suppose like me and I think that's why I enjoy Coraline so much because I suppose I can see a lot of my own attributes and qualities in her yeah yeah so that's cute Thanks. (laughs) I remember when we moved house, I was about 16, Mm -hmm. and I had this cupboard in the back of my cupboard. Mm. And my dad, I really didn't want to move, and I was like having an angsty, like moody fit about it. My dad was like, Oh, your cupboard's like Narnia, though, that's pretty cool. Try to like appeal to my childlike sensibilities. Mm -hmm. I was like, It's not like Narnia, it's like fucking Coraline. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. Yes, it's dead spooky. I think um, the thing I love about it is that it is really gothic in the sense that there is like pathetic fallacy features really strongly in it. I think at the start of chapter two, she talks about how the house is just entirely shrouded in mist. And that is just vibes. Like, <laughs> that just screams gothic. Yeah. But also, the, like a classic gothic trope is like, is it's usually set in like a castle or a really old building and the house is kind of like that it's like a victorian manor house mm. and there's also usually like mystery and suspense which there is because she's on a quest to discover this other world where there's all of these horrible kind of creatures and people mm-hmm. and there's usually omens like bad omens as well and if you think about um well miss spinks and miss forcible read her tea leaves and tell her that she's in grave danger yeah mr bobinski upstairs says the mice have told him to tell her not to go through the little door <laughs> So I don't know why. That's like the start of every horror movie. (laughs) Don't go through the door and she does it anyway. But um, the thing that I love about Coraline is she's not a typical like gothic heroine. She doesn't spend the whole time like crying (laughs) and waiting for a man to save her. Yeah. She's like brave and she's courageous and she's headstrong and she's inquisitive. And she takes the adventure by the horns and goes for it. It makes me think of there's a Fred Botting quote he's mm-hmm. like a gothic scholar person and yeah. um, for those of you who don't have to read his work all the time yeah. um, and he has a quote about how like telling a gothic heroine not to do something means that she's more likely to do it and I think he means it in a very snide way but mm-hmm. I'm like well yeah <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of that bit in The Lion King where Mufasa is trying to get it across the symbol and he's like, being brave doesn't mean you go looking for trouble. They're yeah. Like, it does in the gothic, though. It does there, though. <laughs> yeah, like, everything that happens when she opens this little door, when she goes to the other world, it's like being in some sort of fever dream. You know when you're in that weird place where you're kind of half between being awake and half mm. asleep? Yeah. And you have those really strange, vivid dreams that feel like they're real life, but they're not. Yeah. So when I was younger, I remember having a dream that was so vivid that I was in my own house and I couldn't work out what was wrong, that something wasn't quite right. Mm. And it's like that all the way through the book. It's like the uncanny almost. Mm -hmm. It's like home, but it's not quite like home. Yeah. And she can't work out, well, I couldn't work out in this dream what was wrong, like where my parents were, why things didn't feel quite right. And then Mm -hmm. obviously I woke up because we're not living in like a fictional universe. Yeah. But um, for Coraline, she can't work out like where her parents are, what's wrong, like the picture. There's something not quite right about yeah. the picture. There's little details that are just off mm-hmm. that make it seem homely, but not quite homely. And yeah. I think that is actually more terrifying than a vert horror in some ways. Yeah, so well, it's like, it's like a kind of doppelganger, isn't it? Like totally. you've got the actual people being doppelgangers, but in the house is a doppelganger as well, which yeah. is scary. It is scary. <laughs> 
and it freaks me out still and I'm like old now yeah. <laughs> no but it is scary because it's the familiar being made unfamiliar yeah mm-hmm. there's a video game called Gone Home where you're exploring a big gothic manor house Ooh. you're like playing a character who's come home and her family's gone mm-hmm like you've come home from college and your family's just not there mm. and you're going through your own house trying to work out what exactly's happened but there's no like there, it's not like a crime scene mm-hmm. mm. and you're just going around trying to find all these things that are a little bit off right to yeah. tell you the story of what's happened yeah and it's so unsettling mm. because she's like when I left this looked like like you'll get a photograph in her mind of like it looked like this and then you have to try and kind of find the thing that's moved yeah Mm -hmm. it's horrifying (laughs) yeah it's like it's totally the whole like i don't know what's wrong but something's wrong Mm -hmm. that really freaks me out and i think the fact that her other parents are so casual when they ask her to just sew some buttons into her eyes (laughs) and it's funny in a way if you think about how like how scary that is and how flippantly it's written but the fact that it's written so flippantly makes it so terrifying yeah. so the other parents say um, so she comes out of Miss Spinks and Miss Forcible's other home in which they are doing this really strange theatrical production involving like 7 million Scottish terrier what are they called you know those little fluffy I think it is Scottish terrier yeah, yeah. Um, and it's really like trippy and weird and she comes out and her other parents are like do you like it here I suppose, said Coraline, it's much more interesting than at home. They went inside. I'm glad you like it, said Coraline's other mother, because we'd like to think that this is your home. You can stay here forever and always, if you want to. Hmm, said Coraline. She put her hands in her pockets and thought about it. Her fingertips touched the stone that real Mrs Spink and Forcible had given her the day before. The stone with the hole in it, so it's the stone that helps her spot danger. Mm -hmm. If you want to stay, said her other father... There's only one little thing we'll have to do, so you can stay here forever and always. They went into the kitchen. On a china plate on the kitchen table were a spool of black cotton and a long silver needle, and beside them, two large black buttons. Mm. Ugh. I know. (laughs) So gruesome. It is really gruesome. I think the transformation of the other mother herself is probably the scariest part of it all Mm. it's terrifying in the film if you've seen it she goes from being this really kind of like motherly looking like almost identical to Coraline's mother yeah and she goes from looking like that to being this really like tall just like generally elongated like (laughs) really horrible like spider-like woman Mm. and she looks really kind of angular she's got really chiseled facial features I think Mm -hmm. her um her hands are like metal kind of claws, mm. almost things. pincers, yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously at the start of the film, which is really sp- like spooky, you see these pincer-like hands making this little voodoo doll mm-hmm. and sending it out into the universe. Mm. And you're like, at the end of the film, you go, oh my goodness, that mm. was the other mother. All <laughs> it's so scary how, how she transforms. And um, it's like the mother that's supposed to be this like really nurturing, caring figure, especially in a fairy tale yeah. It's just not. Although I don't know if this is, a, you could call this a fairy tale, arguably, but. I'd say it's got fairy tale elements, elements. to it. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting in the book how she already looks slightly different. Like that introductory yeah. scene that you read, she was already slightly different. Yeah. Whereas in the film, like you said, she basically looks exactly the she same. It's just, that it's just that she has the buttons. Yeah, the eyes are like slightly 
like she talks about her claw like hands in the book that are different yeah um and yeah like i know that the audience listening can't <laughs> see this but it's like look at her claw hands in the oh. illustration oh, they're so weird gross. yeah yeah <laughs> so that's like a thing in, in fairy tales though right like that when it's whenever it's like the witch that's undercover as the maiden uh-huh. it's always the hands that end up giving her away. Them away yeah yeah totally so yeah that is my absolute infatuation <laughs> for always and i think i would love to see more Coraline adaptations because i actually think it would work really well on stage I think you yeah. could make a really good stage play out They've of just done a play of The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Yeah. Uh, like, Neil Gaiman's, one of Neil Gaiman's books. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently it's, like, amazing. And that has very Coraline elements where it's, like, it's a little boy and there's, like, quite a scary woman. Mm-hmm. So, like, you could totally do Coraline as a stage play. Yeah. 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 I feel like it could have good musical numbers, too. Mm-hmm. Like, in a spooky yeah. way. Oh, yeah, because her so dad good. does sing at one point in the film, oh, doesn't he? Really, it leaves me shook every time. <laughs> yeah. Dad, yeah, he makes up these songs and then in the end when it starts to go really wrong and Coraline tries mm. to escape and the other mother knows she doesn't want to stay, the songs, it's like, you know when you unplug like a CD player yeah, and, it and it just goes slowly starts to go yeah. weird? Yeah, that's another thing. The other world is like so in tune with Coraline's other mother yeah it's like the other world is her vision and this thing that she's created like a Mm -hmm. web that she spun yeah to trap Coraline in because as the other mother gets more distressed towards the end when Coraline's trying to escape the other world starts to slowly disappear Mm -hmm. around her Mm -hmm. and I think there's a quote in the book although I'm not sure where (laughs) that it says (laughs) that like the house like distorts and it starts to warp and go Mm. all like strange and like you can see that it was like a facade that was yeah. created to trap her there. Mm. It's like the trapped. Yeah, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> can you tell us the fact about the sweets that you told me? Yeah, the other day? oh, I forgot about that one. So, the other mother who is known by these other victim children as the Bell Dam, which I think means like a kind of old scary witchy lady. Mm. I'm sure that's the that's not the verbatim <laughs> definition, but like <laughs> roughly. Um, she has trapped other children before successfully. Mm-hmm. There are three. And she took their eyes, and by taking their eyes, took their souls. Um, so at the point in time that they had their souls taken away, a little jar um, was placed in Miss Forcible and Miss Spink's downstairs apartment. So in the film, Coraline is offered a pot of, I think it's like toffee or rock. Mm. Um, yeah. And she takes the jar, she tries to catch it, but she smashes it by accident. And on the shelf, you can see another three, and they've got dates on them. So it's like, one, I think, is the 1930s, and then there's one from, I think, the 60s. And it turns out that those jars correlate with the date that each child went missing Mm. and had their soul taken away. Coraline basically would have been the fourth victim. But there's a theory that because she smashed her own jar, she managed to... Yeah, sort of dodge fate. Don't know how how much that was intended, but it's a valid point. <laughs> That's also very fairy tale, isn't it? Like Hansel and Gretel and like the witch, the That's witch with the house made of sweets. Yeah. yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, the kids' clothes in the film, if you look closely, one of the jars says nineteen thirty something on it, and one of the children is dressed in period outfit mm. all the time. So you can you mm. can tell that it corresponds to a child. Each of them. Yeah. So. 
It is very much like she's... What is that which is... Is it Hansel and Gretel that's from? Where, where she, she like cooks the, them? Yeah. I you know the so. witch with the candy... With, kind the, of with the candy house. Yeah, because yeah, they go into the woods and they, yeah. they're... That's right. They leave the breadcrumb trail so mm-hmm. they don't get lost, but then they don't have any bread to eat and they get hungry and then they see a house made of sweets. Yeah. And, and they try and eat the house and then the witch traps them. See, now that I've literally never had this thought before, other than in this exact moment, but you can see parallels between Coraline and yeah. that story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because it's like a perfect house Yeah, with a perfect woman that seems to have the house. I think we've just, we have a theory. Yeah. <laughs> we just found the origin story of Coraline. Yeah, yeah, when she lures her with food, that's the thing that she lures yeah. her in with, is the nice dinners and the massive chickens and anything that she mm-hmm. can dream of. I think she asked for mango milkshake in the film. Mm. and the other mother just happens to have that (laughs) (laughs) so yeah same vibe that's really cool Mm -hmm. oh I loved that I haven't thought about Coraline in ages and I really do enjoy it I need to watch it now (laughs) we had to study it in media studies at school and so I kind of got desensitised to how horrifying it was Mm because I had to watch it five million times but yeah that book has just brought it back how creepy that story is the one thing that I think will haunt me till the day I die, because <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever know the answer, is I read somewhere that there is quite a popular theory that um, Coraline doesn't escape at all. Oh, yeah. So you think that she has. Mm. And I think this applies more so to the film than the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the film, there is... So one of the places where Coraline... An attraction that was made specifically for Coraline was the magical garden with all the lights and it's actually in the shape of her face and everything's just designed to like tantalise her and make her want to stay. And I think you can still see elements of the garden from the other world in the present world garden. Yeah. And I can't remember what it is, that's so going to really bug me now. But I think it's either... It's either the shape of them or just like the actual flowers or something, isn't it? That's exactly the same yeah. and it wasn't like that before yeah which suggests that she is still stuck in the other world and she hasn't escaped and it's another illusion that the other mother has cooked up to make her think she's got out and she actually yeah. hasn't and i was like but why <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna choose to believe that that symbolism to uh get across the fact that Coraline's innocence has been stolen by this experience yeah and she'll never be the way that she was before because if I believe that she didn't get out that's gonna haunt me forever yeah yeah so I'm gonna say that was a, that was a visual I'm gonna say that was a visual symbolism totally I think I'm gonna choose to believe that too for my own personal comfort for my own personal comfort yeah so I think I I just want everyone to read it and to know about it if they don't already mm-hmm. and I think it's like The Shining I know this doesn't <laughs> sound like it's connected but you can interpret it in so many ways and every yeah. time I watch The Shining I take something new from it mm-hmm. and I feel the same about Coraline yeah. I always manage to take something different from it so amazing nice thank you thank for you. that thank you So, our writing chat isn't really a writing chat this week. We basically just threw this section to you and asked what you wanted to do with it. Yeah. Do you want to sort of try and explain like why we're talking about what we're about to talk about? I will try. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, Coraline, although it's not a fairy tale as such, gives me strong fairy tale vibes. And it gets me thinking every time about why we return to the same kind of stories about a bad, kind of scary monster type character who um, kind of goes after an innocent person and it's all about like winning good against evil and what we take from them, what the point of story tales is. Mm-hmm. Because story tales were originally story tales, story tales. Wow, <laughs> that's, the, tales. that's the remix. That's the remix. <laughs> Fairy tales were originally like moral stories, so they were supposed to stop people from doing things they weren't supposed to do and mm-hmm. being ways they weren't supposed to be. And it was mm-hmm. about like the consequences of misbehaving, um, specifically directed at children. I think. Yeah. So yeah, purely based on vibes alone. <laughs> 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 it would be good to discuss um, fairy tales because of their moral uh-huh. mm. elements. Okay. That was a really long explanation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Basically, how, the way I tried to approach this uh-huh. was that Hannah sent a text <laughs> with <laughs> points in it, and I basically just tried to answer all the points was what I did. So will I just start and we yeah. can see I'm where, where sure we I go? I answered my own Yes. Points, so... so the third, the first thing I looked at was like why we love fairy tales, so I'm like okay I'm gonna look at that. So, I have an answer sort of like personally, and then I think like societally <laughs> why we do. So for me, I've always been into fairy tales, but I do think over the past couple years, as is evidenced by this podcast, I've like really got into the retellings mm. of them. Mm-hmm. So like, for me, I've always liked that fairy tales like the original ones are actually really dark and are really gothic the disney ones are cute but i was always drawn to the original ones because of their creepiness um so i'm quite happy that like the retellings that we get now seem to lean more into that side Mm -hmm. of them and i also like that quite a few books that i've read recently have been bringing in like fairy tales or folklore of like the area that they were from so I'm going to mention another one later, but for example, like the Winter Night trilogy, the Bear and the Nightingale mm-hmm. books, like that's filled with so many, like like countless Russian folklore and folk tales, and I think that's like another thing I've enjoyed is how we're being shown all these different countries' fairy tales. So, like Russia or um, like Chinese mythology or like Polish. I think Arabic was in the Golem and the Journey that mm. I read like last year, but. I think part of the reason that like societally we keep coming back to them is two things. I think partly it's escapism. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's why fantasy, like Greek mythology is quite a big one as well. I think that's why they've been such a big focus, especially in the past couple of years, because people literally couldn't leave their houses. And so the like <laughs> escapism yeah. was part of Time that. Time period yeah. and place escapism is nice. Yeah, totally. um, but I also think, and again, I'm sure this is something we are going to talk about, is like the more the morality side of it, because we are living in a weird culture <laughs> right now, yeah. where everyone seems to be obsessed with morality, and it's becoming very black and white. But like originally, like you said, I think fairy tales were trying to make you like a morally pure person. But I think the fairy tale retellings we get now are more about like exploring morality mm-hmm. and like what it means to be morally grey or what it means to be like a good person but to have made mistakes. Like I think retellings these days like to look at nuance more and they're less about like 
hammering a moral point home or in, or like they're just less on the nose and I feel like they do try and imbue a bit of like the characters learning a lesson but it's less about like now boys and girls that's why you shouldn't do blah 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 yeah <laughs> that was my spiel <laughs> it was a good spiel it was a good it was great um so I also answered this question yeah. so I'll give you my answer okay. and then and then we'll let Hannah take it away <laughs> so I tried to answer why we why I and then we love fairy tales okay for me personally it's two things one is the like the oral tradition of them and the mm. sound um so I love like the cadence and the way that they're told and the fact that yeah. they're always like, you, they, you, they're bedtime stories, right? So they're quite lulling, a lot of them. Um, so I enjoy that about them. Also, I think, narrative-wise, it would be the everydayness of the things that are enchanted or magical about mm. them. So it's always everyday objects in a fairy tale that become extraordinary. So, like, the house, or, like, an apple, <laughs> or a spinning wheel, or, uh, like, a pumpkin turning a carriage. So I think that the iconography in fairy tales is quite timeless and that means that, I don't know, like that means that in your, your own day-to-day life, I think we come back to them because they have these day-to-day things that we can still see all the time. Yeah, you can like picture it because you know what it looks like and you can like picture the fantasy version of it. Yeah, kind of. and then you yeah. come back to every, like, I don't know if everyone does this, but in my day-to-day life, if I pick up an apple, I can't, like, bite into an apple without thinking of um, yeah. Snow White. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah. like, they're just always there in mm-hmm. your head. And then on the morality point, I was thinking about how fairy tales are fables, so stories with a message. And, as Hannah pointed out, one of the earliest examples of our morality education as children is fairy tales. Like, is one of the first things that we that gets used to teach us about right and wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think what's interesting about that is that we use the fantasy as a kind of sweetener for the moral lesson. So, like, a lot of the same lessons could be taught to us with loads of stories that don't involve fairy creatures or magic. But these tales are easier to digest because A, they take out some of the complexities of the real world. So like, for example, the example I was thinking of is like othering is really easy mm-hmm. to do when you map it onto something that isn't real, like a goblin or a troll or a mm-hmm. witch, because then any socially or culturally othered group can be mapped onto that, yeah, depending totally. on the time period. Yeah. So like whoever society's decided is bad <laughs> will yeah. take that role, yeah. and whoever's good we'll take the hero role totally so yeah just because it deals in archetypes and stuff like that i think it's like a really clever it's like almost insidiously clever way to teach morality Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but one of the so like the example that i came up with to kind of answer your point about like the retellings Mm -hmm. i love red riding hood that's like one of my favorite fairy tales and i feel like because the wolf right originally the wolf was just like men (laughs) <laughs> like don't don't go with men they're bad and they will violate you but um, <laughs> and it can mean that in retellings like in Into the Woods it's like he's literally a creepy old man trying to violate a young girl but it can also mean like something more abstract so I've seen R- Red Riding Hood retellings where it's been like the wolf is the government mm-hmm. the wolf is the regime and it's like trying to fool innocent people until they're trapped the wolf is the mother 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, I think that we've seen a lot of retellings in recent years, and this is why I love about retellings, where the girl can be Red Riding Hood and the wolf. Mm-hmm. And so then the wolf becomes female sexuality. And so I think, I don't know, I think that's cool that retellings, like you were saying, that they lean into the darkness. I think it's cool that they lean into the nuance as well of the moment that they're being retold in. Yeah. So, like, right now, there's a whole argument about female sexuality being demonised for years and years. So it would make sense that a modern retelling would have the girl is the wolf. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. You know what I mean? And I just, I think that that's a cool thing for writers to do. Yeah, no, definitely. That was my very elegant spiel. It was very nice. elegant, I loved it. Do you have a spiel about this too? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, for my question, you know when you you know you have asked the question and you've forgotten what your own <laughs> question is? Why we love fairy tales. I just love the escapism element. And I also love that you can make them up yourself. So, mm. when I was younger, I used to love when my dad would tell me his own fairy tales and they were always based loosely on the same moral values mm-hmm. or the same issue or sometimes I'd invent an issue and he would invent a character and there'd be a whole story world that we can cop from those yeah. things but also just the way that they are so versatile and you can adapt them to so many like world happenings or like what's going on in the world and you can use them as a way to navigate really difficult situations as well to write about them mm-hmm. they can be allegory mm-hmm. um and they often are and i think it's just fascinating how one story that could have originated 200 300 400 maybe even more years yeah. ago is still so relevant today is still loved mm-hmm. um still told to children today as it was ch- like hundreds of years ago Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just the fact that they never die <laughs> and they never get old that sounded so like I wanted them to die they never go away I think it's just their versatility and adaptability yeah. that I love I love that your dad used to make up stories my dad used to make up stories too yeah. for me it's so cute that is so cute I had yeah. this really random rule though that so they always had to involve a witch there always had to be a witch in it but the witch was never allowed to have any vowels in her name <laughs> that's amazing I so my dad would have to call it things and try and remember what he'd called her so she'd be called something like <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. so good my dad used to read me I had like a china doll oh. that I couldn't like play with because she was made of china uh-huh. so she would be sort of like on a shelf <laughs> like, yeah. and he used to like tell me stories when we were going to bed of like when you're asleep this doll like wakes up and like she goes on adventures and then she comes back in the morning uh-huh. and she's like asleep again. That would terrify me. I think it explains a lot about my personality. <laughs> yeah, that 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 really explains a lot. <laughs> it's very formative. Yeah. That it's a formative experience. I don't know why this like links in my head for you, but like you're not a person I expected to like roller coasters when I met you because you seem quite timid. Yeah, you like but oh. I love them. <laughs> but that story makes me understand why you like roller coasters. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Oh, Emily. <laughs> I have a further spiel about my favorite retelling. Shall I go into that? Okay. I think this is my favourite. Like, there's a lot that I like, but this is the one that I could easily, like... I could easily give you a story about it, basically. Mm. So, 
I have spoken about it on here before, so I'll keep like the plot bit short, but it's Spinning Silver, Naomi Novik, and it is mostly a Rumpelstiltskin retelling, um, but there are some general like Slavic folk tales brought in. And I was thinking of like the question that you posed to us of whether does it still carry the same message mm-hmm. that like Rumpelstiltskin did? Yeah. And I couldn't, <laughs> I didn't know my answer because I struggled to come up with what the moral of Rumpelstiltskin was. So I googled it and ended up on <laughs> philosophyforchildren.org. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> which told me that the moral of Rumpelstiltskin is to tell the truth and take responsibility for your own mistakes. Hang on just a minute, can we have a... Hold up. <laughs> Rumpelstiltskin's the one where you need to guess his name, right? Yeah, I'm about to explain it. Right, okay, carry on. <laughs> Because I was like, I feel like I'm missing some content. <laughs> so, the dad, there's a dad. Uh-huh. He lies to the king about his daughter's talent of spinning straw into gold. Oh, right. Yeah. She can do this. She is then locked in a tower by the king and is ordered to do this. And in waltzes Rumpelstiltskin, of course, who says, oh, I'll do it for you. Like, mm. I'll spin the straw into gold in exchange for a gift. So she gives him a necklace and he spins the straw into gold. Then she has to do it again. So this time she gives him a ring and he does it again. And then she has to do it a third time, but she doesn't have anything else to give him. So she promises him her firstborn child. Right. And so to get out of that deal, she, Rumpelstiltskin says she can keep her child if she can guess his name in three attempts. Mm-hmm. And she does on the third attempt because she overhears someone who overheard him telling someone <laughs> what his name was. Right. Because <laughs> he's an idiot. Um, and then he dies. <laughs> That's so not funny. Right. Uh, do you know what? <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way you said that. The, the way that the website, not philosophy for children, another <laughs> website, described it was like, I think he stamps his foot or something mm-hmm. and then splits in half, right? Oh. And then, <laughs> and I can't remember what the website says, but then it ended by being like, Rumpelstiltskin was divided on the issue. <laughs> Spinning Silver follow that like moral story? Um, my answer is yes and no. On the episode I talked about how like the spinning in Spinning Silver is like it's actually about money, it's about making enough coins to like turn into gold coins. Yeah. But there is an importance placed on like names, and um, the heroine Mariam's not allowed to find out the Winter King's name because that would give her power over him. So like that stuff all kind of fits like the story. But I was thinking about the idea of like taking responsibility for your mistakes. And I do think that applies to Spin and Silver because Mariam gets wrapped up in this Staric is the like the kind of quote unquote villain's world because she's bragging that she can turn silver into gold on a road that she knows that the Staric travel on. So when they come to collect her to like make her turn their silver into gold, she like she's not surprised. Mm. And she does it because she's made a mistake, and she knows that if she doesn't do it, like her family will, like, suffer. Suffer. <laughs> so she is taking like responsibility for her mistakes. So like, I just thought it was interesting. The like closer I looked at it, I was like, mm-hmm. actually, the moral did stick. Mm. So like, maybe it wouldn't in every single retelling, because kind of like you were saying that, your the moral probably fit depending on what the moral of the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I did think it was interesting. That, that is interesting. Like, that, that one actually did track. 
Nice. That's really um, cool. I also found out a fact that the story of Rumpelstiltskin, under like a different name, is actually a thousand years older than Homer. Wow. Isn't that's that wild. isn't that crazy? Yeah. So there you go. I want to know like <laughs> <laughs> what had to happen in real life mm. to inspire because something must have happened to inspire that story. And I'm not saying that yeah. the real life events, ha- but like, I wonder, because names did used to be like a currency of their own. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if there was like a, an instance of someone guessing someone else's name mm. that took a lot of power away from them. Possibly. Like, Quite probably. I want to know what this is mm-hmm. now. Yes. I'll look it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also have a favourite retelling spiel. Go for it. So I was saying this before we started recording, but it turns out I have not read a lot of retellings <laughs> in my time. I've read a lot of Persephone retellings, because mm. I like the Persephone myth, but that's not a fairy tale. Mm. So I looked up a list of 100 essential retellings, and the, the only... 100 essentials, apparently. Uh-huh. The only ones I've read are The Palm Wine Drinkard by Amos Tutola, which is a retelling of a Nigerian folktale, oh. which I do happen to have read. And The Bloody Chamber by Angela oh, Carter. I do love oh, The yeah. Bloody Chamber. Which obviously is a Bluebeard retelling. But I wouldn't say either of those are like favourites. Mm. And then I was going to talk about The World's Wife by Carol Ann Duffy. Yeah. But I've talked about that one here before. <laughs> so I was like, try to find something else. So I've decided to go with Into the Woods. Mm. Because I watch it every year at Christmas. And yeah. it's really bizarre. But I think the thing that I like about it is that as I just mentioned Little Red Riding Hood, and in Into the Woods, the wolf is a predatory man. He is also a wolf, but he's a man. Mm. And it is all to do with the idea of sexual maturity. But unlike, well, I'd say unlike in the original text, in Into the Woods, by the end, Red is really self-aware about the fact that she's lost her childhood. Mm. Mm-hmm. And she kind of grieves as that, as well as being like, like, obviously, the, the moral is meant to be, like, don't follow strangers when you don't know, like, who they are and people are dangerous, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I think, like, so the, the song that she sings after she's been cut out of the wolf's belly has this really unsettling verse where it's, like, he showed me things, many beautiful things that I hadn't thought to explore. They were off my path, so I never had dared. I had been so careful, I never had cared. And he made me feel excited, well, excited and scared. And then it goes on after that and says, But I know things now, many valuable things that I hadn't known before. Do not put your faith in a cape and a hood. They will not protect you the way that they should. And take extra care with strangers, even flowers have their dangers. And though scary is exciting, nice is different than good. Which I think is a good moral. Mm. Um... And then the very end, you think that's the end of the song, and then she says, isn't it nice to know a lot and a little bit not? Mm. Which I think like that line changes the whole thing because it's like you're getting a recite in this whole moral that is kind of the moral of Little Red Riding Hood. Mm-hmm. Like, don't, don't believe in strangers, even flowers have their dangers. Mm-hmm. But then she's like, I wish I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually really quite poignant, though. It and is. so I think, like, the fact that the moral in this retelling isn't necessarily the, that the wolf was dangerous, but that your own judgment is what keeps you safe or leads you into danger. And she knew it was dangerous and she went anyway because she wanted to see the things that were off her path. 
Yeah. And then she's kind of like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Mm. And so, like, you can't... I think, like, a really... I don't know. I found, like, a fundamental lesson of when you're a girl is that you can't really fool yourself twice. Mm-hmm. If you find yourself in a dangerous situation, yep. you then see it a mile off. Yeah, the yeah. next And you can't be fooled by the nice things about it again because you're just like, nah, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel like is maybe like a particularly female experience. <laughs> you're right. Like, that's why I loved, but I loved Sleeping Beauty as a child as well, because my gran used to read that to me every night, and it was, like, the original dark one. Yeah. But I only liked the bit up until she pricked her finger on the spinning wheel. Right. And after that, I got quite bored. And I think it's because... <laughs> she was asleep. <laughs> well, what is that? But I think just, like, the, the figure of the girl being drawn to a deadly thing... Yeah. ...is, like, so current in our culture now. Yeah, yeah. That, I don't know, I think that's, like, a nice kind of retelling. Yeah. Alex E. Harrow, who wrote The Ten Thousand Doors of January, mm-hmm. has a novella out that I need to read called A Spindle Splintered, and it is a Sleeping mm-hmm. Beauty retelling. But I really want to read it because she, she's such a, like, feminist. Mm-hmm. Like, And I'm like, how did she, how has she rewritten this? I'm like, it must be good. <laughs> I love Sleeping Beauty. Like, yeah. it's one of my favourites. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was my that was my favourite retelling spiel. Nice. What about you? Do you have one? I actually don't have a favourite retelling. Yeah. But I do have a book that I recently read that I thought I could tell you about. Yes, yes go please for do. it. Um, so this actually, I think, only came out, she checks, <laughs> last year. I think it was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, last year. And it's The Lost Storyteller by Amanda Block. And I read it recently. And it's basically a story that has fairy tales within the story and um, to give you a brief sort of synopsis it's about a girl who well I say a girl she's a woman she's 26 I think and she hasn't been in contact with her birth dad for years he left when she was really small she was about seven or eight and she has these really fragmented memories of him he was a famous actor in a children's tv program and so everybody knows who her dad is Mm. but they don't know that she is his daughter and she's grown up never knowing anything about him never knowing where he went he never left any trace of where he went and then one day her grandmother gives her a book that she somehow forgot to pass on to her and it is a book of fairy tales that was written for her so Mm. tailor written for her by her dad and left for her um and it's i think seven fairy tales i think and basically each one is like a jigsaw piece and she has to read these fairy tales work out what the moral is work out who in her life is represented Mm. by the character in the story to eventually find or not find him because i don't want to spoil it for anyone who (laughs) might want to read it but yeah it's about the power of stories and how she came to understand so much about her absent father Mm -hmm. through these tales that he'd written for her and how it taught her so much about his experience, things that she hadn't known because she was told about who he was from the biased perspective of her mother yeah. and her other family members. Um, and it's really powerful and just so poignant. And it was one of those books I read and it hit me right in the feels. <laughs> so I read it and it was just so beautifully written and it just all came together so well. And Block's writing style is amazing because she goes from this like kind of modern day contemporary narrative style to this like old worldy kind of almost Victorian like Mm -hmm. fairy tale style of writing and it's just it's beautiful 
and it just made yeah. me believe in the power of stories again. Not that Aww. I ever forgot it, but I loved it. So. Oh, I really want to read it. It sounds amazing. Well, you can have it today. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. you <laughs> so yeah, it's not a retelling, but I think everyone should read it, especially because I think it's actually her debut novel, mm. and she's brilliant. Like her writing's yeah. great. So. Exciting. Oh, I love that. So are the fairy tales, like, do you think they're inspired by any that we know, or are they totally, like, original? I think the morals in them are, mm. in the sense that there's usually somebody who's, well, the father, Leo, feels that he's been, like, persecuted, mm. or been, like, he's had wrong done to him yeah. by these specific people, and it's about, like, overcoming adversity, mm-hmm. like, not putting yourself in certain situations, having to leave things behind really painfully, mm. a lot of the tropes that you see mm. in fairy yeah, tales, yeah. but I wouldn't say that they are inspired by any like obvious the story, yeah. that we would know, which is why I loved it so much, actually. Yeah, no, that's so really unique. cool. Yeah. Nice. So. Nice. Yeah. Is that, is that us done? Is that the fairy tales yes. over? I think so. <laughs> Emily, do you have a quick fire favourite? Yes. My favourite is a song from a musical I've not seen. <laughs> <laughs> it's meant to be yours from Heather's The Musical. It's been going viral on TikTok. It's the sound where Jamie Moscato is as JD singing he's like Veronica open the open the door please and mm. it's like is this so yeah I've not seen the musical Heathers but I've seen the film many many times um, and I can like perfectly picture the scene it's the bit where <laughs> spoilers for Heathers <laughs> it's from the 80s <laughs> yeah. uh, it's the bit where JD is announcing to Veronica that he's going to bomb the school and she's in her bedroom like staging her suicide that she wants him to like walk in and mm. see but I really love the song, especially this version with Jamie, because even though you can't like see him, you can like picture the deranged psychopath that he is <laughs> meant to be betraying. But it's like the bit in the story where he's still trying to like win her over. So he's like, his voice will be like really sweet, and he'll be like, "Oh, please, please, like, please open the door." And, like mm. I just want to go, and then he'll be like, "Veronica," <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like singing about how he's going to bomb the school and they're going to like make s'mores on the fire. <laughs> And yeah, he just manages to find that balance in a song, which I think is great. I feel like so. that's very... I've only seen Heather's like three times, mm-hmm. but I'm now connecting when you've said about that song. It's very Maisie Peters vibes. Mm-hmm. Or yes. Maisie Peters is very Heather's vibes. Yeah, I would agree with that. She loves a psycho song. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is mine. Nice. Do you want to go next? Sure. Um, my quite fair favourite is also a song. Nice. And it is All My Ghosts by Lizzie McAlpine. I think you'll like this song. Oh, I like Lizzie McAlpine. So this is a really lovely song. Um, it's about falling in love with somebody and knowing that you have all this baggage to bring to the relationship. But instead of wanting... I feel like the normal way that that song would go is you want to hide the baggage from the person. But this is about wanting to hide the person from your baggage. Mm. So in the song, she goes to all these places with this guy and she loves everywhere they go and they have a great time but every bit ends with all my ghosts are with me I know you feel it too they know all my habits but they don't know about you mm. which I just think is really cute <laughs> and then then there's a whole like I feel like Lizzie McAlpine songs are always really sad but there's a whole bridge in this bit where she just like 
erupts into this big like drum roll crescendo and she's like I can see it now the wedding of the year <laughs> uh, but she's like really optimistic about this Aww. relationship mm-hmm. and basically she uses this boy as like a secret weapon to get rid of her ghosts but it's like I when I listen to it I picture the ghosts as like little guardians <laughs> rather than like really malevolent ghosts uh-huh. I imagine them just like hanging about when she's like, "All oh, my ghosts are with me," <laughs> and it makes me think of Mulan, oh, with all the ancestors, or yeah. like, or like Meg with all the muses. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's just, it's just a cute song. It's got a cute metaphor, and it's got a really really good bridge. So I would recommend. Awesome. Nice. Hannah, do you have a quick fire favorite? <laughs> yes, I remembered what my. I actually just recently bought the first Outlander book and I haven't actually started reading it yet but because I bought it, it got me like re-watching Outlander season one mm. which is my favourite TV series of all time okay. and I just think if anybody out there has not seen it then why? Because <laughs> it's brilliant. Very, very, very quick synopsis. This is mm-hmm. obviously about, well it's not obviously about if you haven't seen it. A woman called Claire who is basically time zapped from the 1940s back in time to like I think it's like 1743 Mm -hmm. so she leaves her husband behind and her job as a war nurse and the war has just ended and she meets um, this really really attractive man (laughs) (laughs) Um, played by Sam is it Sam Hoyen I can never say his name I don't no, I, don't, I, I think that's how I would say it, I but I don't know. Some. It might not be. Sorry if he, he won't be listening. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if you're listening, really famous Outlander man. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, and she builds this life in like 1743, and it's just, it's basically about her um, experience coming to terms with what she's left behind, but also the life that she can build where she is now and how how i just love how magical it is mm. i watch it it's a comfort watch for me i watch it before bed every night <laughs> <laughs> or i have done recently because it's so soothing and it's one of those things that just reminds me of being little because it's like escapism yeah and i can't wait to start reading the book um i think there are like seven yeah or maybe there's now eight i'm not sure because i think there's a new one tell the bees that i am gone mm. that has just come out so I want to start reading the book now so I can watch the series and read the book at the same yeah. time. <laughs> I really cute. want yeah. to watch it and read it because I haven't, but I do think I would like it. The series is like shit. Is it not like her hus- the actor who plays her husband plays someone in the past oh, as well? It's really Yeah, so the guy, her husband is called Frank and basically there's this really, really horrible, horrible guy uh-huh. who turns out to be Frank's direct ancestor. Uh-huh. And she thinks that it's her husband because they, well, they're played by the same actor, so they mm. would look the same. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's awful. Mm-hmm. But great. That's intriguing. <laughs> it's so good. I yeah. love that that's like the show that you go to sleep with because I know that you did oh, that with BBC Dracula, Dracula as well. <laughs> so I was like having a really bad day last <laughs> week and I thought, I want something comforting before a bit. BBC Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I did. You two are the same person. We are. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to end, do you have a route for it? I do have a route. This isn't a particularly profound or exciting route, but it is pretty. So I decided to look up the etymology of fable since we Ooh. were talking about fairy tales. And no surprise, it comes from the Latin words for speak, which is fari, and story, which is fabula. 
But I think it's a cool sonic coincidence that fairy tale mm. would just mean spoken tale, which was oh. why I thought it was funny that you said story tale. Story tale. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, like, I don't know, like, I'm wondering, because it's an oral tradition, like, at some point, was fairy tale just fairy tale? And then it's got merged with the word for, like, fairy. magical creatures? Oh, that's whole I don't know. Yeah, I don't, don't know that for a fact, but that would make sense to me. Yeah, I suppose it would depend whether f- tale. Fa- fairy mm. came before or after the idea of a fairy tale. Like the yeah. actual word for a fairy. I always just assume that because fairies were like small and sprightly and magical that fairy tales came from that, but maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it's the other way, kind of. Rebecca's yeah, maybe, fa- maybe fairy tales yeah. invented fairies. Yeah. That's, Instead yeah. of... Fairies inventing fairy tales. Tricky. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Much to ponder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I was any good at my job, I would have looked that up. <laughs> but I haven't. No, that's so. a fun fact. I love that. <laughs> I just was like, that's a cool thing. I'm going to speculate about that one. Yeah. <laughs> do you have an insight for us? I do. So, I'm excited about this. So, Hannah oh, no. is, as we all are here, a fan of Erin Morgenstern. Yeah. So I thought I would read one of Morgenstern's Flax Golden Tales Yay. today. Oh, that's made my day. <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone who needs a reminder, I've read some of these before, but these are 10 sentence stories that Morgenstern wrote to accompany photographs. And what I did today is I actually looked up all the August ones to see if I could find one posted on your birthday. That is so wholesome. And I found one. Uh-huh. So this was posted on 28th of August 2009. How old would I have been then? I don't know. I don't know. That's um, I'll decide that later. <laughs> nine. Is it 13? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think. And it's a photograph of a street sign that just says Mystery Street on it. Um, and that's the title of it. So, <clears throat> Mystery Street is a good place to find what you're looking for if you can find Mystery Street itself. There's a sign, of course, and it is somewhat near Illusion Square, which you can see only if you face it from the east. From other directions, Illusion Square appears to be a park full of small dogs catching large frisbees. Once you cross Illusion Square, you take two left turns and two right ones, not necessarily in that order, and then you should be able to see the sign. If you get hopelessly lost, you can ask a cat for directions. Blue-eyed cats will only speak in half-truths, but half-true directions are better than no directions at all. You'll know you found Mystery Street when you see the sign. After that, well, you should be able to find whatever it is you're looking for. You can find pretty much anything on Mystery Street once you get there. Oh. <laughs> That has got extreme Welcome to Night Vale vibes. That is so cool. That dog park. The dog park. Very eerie. I imagine Rolo there. My <laughs> little, tiny sausage yeah. dog for reference. Small dog yeah. with large frisbee. Yeah. Rolo doesn't do like no. normal dog things, but if he did, I'd take him to this place. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Well, that is us. That is us. Thank you, Hannah, yeah. for being our guest. That was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure. 
So if you have any comments or questions, our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We have social media, which is linked in the show notes along with everything we talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music we mention. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there. Do that thing even though we say it all the time. (laughs) Yeah, and we will link Hannah's whatever she wants us to link in the show notes as well (laughs) so you can find her (laughs) come and show hannah some love on the socials as well (laughs) and we will see you all next time bye Bye. (laughs) yay Yay. well done